0: This is episode number 181 with Patrick McEwen. New concepts and ideas to help you reach your full potential. Reach your full potential. Reach your full potential. Small win, small win, small win. Keep your momentum going. The Success 101 Podcast. Welcome to the Success 101 Podcast. This is your host, Jared Warren. And each episode, my goal is to bring you a new concept or idea to help you maximize your full potential. Thanks for joining me here today. Now let's kick things off. Sorry, guys, I had to get that tape off my mouth. Welcome back to the Success 101 podcast. As always, this is your host, Jared Warren. Why did I have my mouth tape? It's part of a process you guys are going to learn today about breathing through your nose for some pretty incredible advantages. And if we're going to hit higher levels of peak performance, there is no better way to do that, in my opinion, than to learn how to breathe properly. Today, you're going to learn a tremendous amount of information about breathing from my guest, Patrick McEwen. This one simple technique, That's free, by the way. Breathing through your nose does amazing things like delays the onset of fatigue and lactic acid. It improves your aerobic performance. It improves VO2 max, your maximal oxygen uptake. It improves delivery of oxygen to organs and working muscles. Reduces breathlessness during physical exercise. Helps improve and maybe even, like you'll hear in Patrick's story, heal your asthma symptoms. And also helps maintain focus and concentration during competition and everyday working conditions. I'm telling you guys, I can't wait to bring this two-part episode to you, part one we will hear today. And I think for some of you out there, just as it did with me, it's going to change your life. First, I want to mention to you guys, though, that my individual and corporate coaching models have finally been released after three hard years of working on these programs that have all been designed by myself and my team and have already started getting a lot of attention from the people who are going through them right now. I want to bring these out to you guys, and it's something that I have worked on. It's probably some of the most important work of my life, and I cannot wait for you guys to join on board. If you go to success101podcast.com forward slash coaching you'll see the four modules you can choose from there to meet your desired planning and growth strategies. Choose from the transformational life change module, the ultimate personal planning and development module, which is the most popular so far, the six-week blueprint creation module, where we get really focused around in-depth coaching strategies toward a specific area of focus for you, or the monthly progressive growth and development module. Again, guys, I've worked on this for quite a while. Several times along the way, I wondered if it was ready to release to the public, and I just didn't feel good putting my stamp of approval, my brand on this until more recently. I got everything designed just the way I wanted it while working with my team, and I cannot wait for those of you who want to join this coaching program to have life change. Head to success101podcast.com forward slash coaching and check out the programs I've got listed in detail there on the website. I look forward to meeting you working with you on intensive growth and strategy solutions and working on a strategy of incredible life change with you. Now, guys, on to my incredible show today with Patrick McEwen. I mentioned some pretty incredible benefits a few minutes ago about taping your mouth, learning to breathe through your nose. We're going to dive in today in part one into a host of things to bring you guys into higher levels of peak performance, helping you to breathe lighter by something as simple as breathing through your nose. We're going to learn today why mouth breathing, which most people out there do in our stressful society, causes stress, fatigue, lack of concentration. Also, could deep breathing actually be reinforcing a state of stress rather than helping us in most cases throughout our day? We'll learn why the proper way to take a deep breath is by taking the lightest, quietest breath that you can take. We'll learn why we've been misled about CO2, carbon dioxide, for so long. Also learn a lot about nitric oxide. We'll learn why taking deep breaths doesn't really mean you're saturating your blood with more oxygen, as we oftentimes think it does, and why mouth breathing will cause you to typically wake up more tired and more dehydrated than nose breathing will. Now, I have to say this before the podcast begins. When I bring incredible guests like Patrick McEwen on the show, we want it to go off flawless without a hitch, right? Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. We had a little small issue with the variance of sound quality due to a storm that Patrick was going through. But I just wanted to make sure you guys knew that there might be some times during our episode today where the audio is just not crystal clear quality like you guys have come to know from the Success 101 podcast. But don't let that distract you. Don't let that take away from Patrick's incredible message of breathing and peak performance that I know you guys are going to be excited to hear. So without any further delay, Let's cut right to my conversation with Patrick McEwen. Patrick, how's it going? Good, How are you? Everything on this show is meant to gear everyone toward a higher level of peak performance. And I don't know if anything better that could bring you toward a level of peak performance than breathing. You know, you can talk about diet, you can talk about exercise, breath is pretty critical. And I didn't understand how critical it was until I had a chance to dive into your book, The Oxygen Advantage. And I normally don't pick up books without a lot of insight, you know, just busyness of life or whatever. You've got to pick and choose what you allow to get into your schedule. But I'd seen this book pop up a couple of different times through some people that I respect. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't put it down because the information there that I'm so excited to dive into today is just so important for my guests, for my listeners to hear. And without really diving in before giving people who haven't heard about your information or about your work for so many years now, without giving diving too deep before we discuss that, why don't you tell me about the idea your own journey in life, your asthma, how you started getting into breathing, how it really changed your life, and then what was birthed uh, as far as the oxygen advantage from all of that. And then we'll dive into the more technical part of this.
1: So I suppose my background was I became involved with breathing. It was it was really by accident. I had chronic health problems since the time I was a child. I can remember when I was about five and six years of age, I would be wheezing. I wasn't diagnosed with asthma at the time. Doctors were kind of reluctant. So they call it chronic bronchitis. And I think that was a, more in an effort not to to alarm my mother, so that went on. Uh, the poison got worse. I was on medication then. Remember running for school for a for a bus, wouldn't be able to keep keep up with it or catch, you know, keep the pace. And it continued to get worse into my early twenties. And I read an article in an Irish newspaper. It was about the work of a Russian doctor, and he discovered two things. He said, "Breathe through your nose," and he said, "Breathe less." And at that time. I'd never breathe it through my nose or if I did breathe through my nose, it was purely by accident because every photograph that I look back on, even my my college um, graduation photograph, class photograph, I was there with the mouth hanging open and every photograph before that. And always my nose was stuffy because we'd ask my course if there's inflammation in the lungs, it travels up into the nose and if there's inflammation in the nose, it travels down to the lungs. And the other thing about that is is when your nose is stuffy and your mouth breathing, your sleep is affected. So I was constantly tired, but of course I never connected that with my asthma. And another aspect of it, when you mouth breathe, you breathe faster and you're constantly sighing and I was thoracic breathing because mouth breathing will tend to activate the upper chest and fast breathing activates the fight or flight response. So you're more stressed. So as a child from five years of age upwards or from what I can remember, uh, wheezing problems, sleep problems, stress problems, concentration problems. And I can only imagine the amount of kids and adults that are, are fitting, you know, into this box today and nobody's talking about nose breathing. And nobody is telling these people to start changing their breathing patterns. You know, the most simplest thing in the world, no side effects. And could help so many, many people. So anyway, I heard about this Russian doctor. I went back into university went online and found the exercise to decongest my nose which was simply holding the breath and by the way this wasn't a new exercise this exercise wasn't developed in the 1990s or in the 1950s for that matter i have a paper from 1923 and it shows breath tolling in man reduces nasal congestion you know so 30 percent of the western population it's affected is affected by rhinitis And rhinitis is basically, you know, there's two types of it, perennial rhinitis or hay fever. Perennial rhinitis means that you have a stuffy nose most days of the year for at least one hour per day. And seasonal rhinitis is is hay fever. So it happens when there's pollen or whatever. And when we have rhinitis, it's not just having a stuffy or a blocked nose. It really affects and impacts on sleep. So people with asthma are tired all the time. And people with rhinitis have an increased risk of sleep disorder breathing. They don't get a deep sleep you know, they tend to stay in light sleep. So there are changes for me were remarkable. I switched to nose breathing. I practiced slowing down my breathing to change my breathing patterns. When I first switched to nose breathing, I felt very suffocated. If you go around with your mouth open for so many years, you develop poor breathing habits um, because your nose implies, you know, it enforces about 50% resistance to your breathing. So when you suddenly close your mouth and switch to breathing through your nose, you feel that you're not getting enough air. And also, The muscles of the nose, it takes time for them to restore functioning. That's why there are devices on the market that can help there, you know, little nasal dilators, for example. One is called mute snoring, or there's another one for sports called the turbine. And they're based on a maneuver developed by an American ENT back in the 1970s. His name was Morris Cottle. And he said that the human nose, he said, is responsible for 30 functions in the human body. And the Cottle maneuver is basically if you put one finger one side of your nostril, And the other finger, the other side, and you gently prise your nostrils apart. And you'll feel a difference and it's easier to breathe. So that helps to return some nasal patency there. But anyway, I persevered. Within the first couple of nights, my sleep was dramatically improved. And I mean, waking up alert. I had never woken up alert. I didn't realize what it was like to actually wake up after a decent night's sleep. You know, and that was huge. My wheezing, my asthma medication, within the first week, certainly it came down by about, I'd say about 50%. I felt calmer. And all it took was simple nose breathing and simple slow breathing.
0: This is not just about breathing for, let's say, anxiety, stress. I mean, there is a genetic change that is happening at a cellular level in your body when we choose to breathe right versus breathing the wrong way. I just I was blown away because I can't believe of everything that we're taught You just do a quick Google search on diet. There's millions upon millions of articles that come out from people that think they know how to do dieting the right way, and maybe they're wrong. There's exercise. Everybody has an opinion on that. Nobody's talking about breathing. And if it's so critical from even down to a cellular level and how it changes lives, longevity, all those sort of things, reset your systems, everything that we're going to dive into in a moment. Why do you feel like it's not being talked about in just a rabid way out there for everyone to get their mind around from early childhood on up to adulthood?
1: Well, the simple fact is doctors don't talk about breathing through the nose. It's in every medical textbook. The physiology of the nose is well understood. Even if we were looking at just from an asthma point of view, if you breathe through your nose, it moistens and it warms the air before it comes into the lungs. And if you take moist, warm air into your lungs, you're less likely to have inflammation of the airways conversely if you take dry cold air into your lungs um, it can aggravate the airways and it can lead to inflammation of the airways and then as your airways the lower airways which are your lungs as they constrict or narrow you feel you're not getting enough air so you start breathing harder and as you breathe harder basically more moisture is sucked out of the airways and that in turn causes inflammation so asthma is one of those conditions where the condition feeds in, in itself so simple stuff, shard, you know and i mean to say like This is revolutionary, you know, and it's revolutionary that it hasn't got out there. And we were contacted during the week by this an American philanthropist. And uh, he had discovered the importance of nose breathing for his own sleep. uh, And he contacted us and he said, he said, I'd love to donate and to fund getting this program out to children for free. So we have agreed an initiative with him that all children in the world, um, regardless of financial means, that they can have access to our online breathing program for kids online, and they can download it, they can watch it. And it was costing $50, and we're now making it out. It's going to be completely for free. And parents who do have the financial means to pay, we do suggest that they make a donation of $5, because that will um, feed back into our costs. And I think it's huge, you know, that we can put out this information now for free, because... Now, there's not going to be any excuse, you know, if the information is there. And all, all I need to do now is to try and get it out in, into the awareness of the general public. And I think once that happens, I think then the medical profession will, will start really considering it seriously because it will be driven, the demand will be driven by the general public, um, you know, because the information is already in, in the medical journals, but it's not getting into the hands of the general public. And I think it's, a, it's time we empower the general public to make the change. Um, So it'll be bottom up as opposed to top down.
0: Young children, I think you said 50% of children are mouth breathers these days. What is causing us to change even at a very young age? Because those kids aren't dealing with a lot of emotional stress or business stress or financial anxiety or, you know, whatever it is where they need to to sit and and be calm. What's starting to change it even as a very young child?
1: It's it's difficult to quantify, but there could be a number of factors there. How the mom breeds during pregnancy um, can influence the blood gas of the fetus, which is fairly obvious. So even though the baby is born, the baby is born breathing through their nose, it's an actual fact for the first few months of life, they'll tend only to nasal breathe. So if a young infant, if they have a problem with the nose, um, it can be really detrimental because they're not able to switch to mouth breathing so quickly and so readily. It's only after a few months that they switch to mouth breathing. And generally that coincides with teething. You know, they get the first upper respiratory infection, the nose gets stuffy, they feel they're not getting enough air through the nose. Generally, anything that causes... Um, impairment to breathing through your nose. If your nose is stuffy, if you've, if you've got a head cold, if there's a structural deviation there, all of those factors, uh, adenoids in children, for instance, if the back of the nose is a blockage, all of those factors will contribute to mouth breathing. And then on top of that, babies are born into very, you know, houses that are very well insulated and they don't have a fresh air or fresh air draft running through them the way they had years ago. The baby mightn't, you know, have the, the mom mightn't be able to due to economic pressures you know to breastfeed that baby the mom might have to go back to work and so the baby then doesn't get the development of the jaws because breastfeeding is not just for mother's milk but it's also breastfeeding causes and forces the baby to really work those muscles of the jaws and face and that develops great muscle tone and really strong jaws and strong jaws and good muscle tone is is conducive to keeping the mouth closed the lips together and there could be little stresses then and you know I think it's poor muscle tone and uh, the babies then are put on the diet generally soft foods whereas our ancestors actually would have been eating you know infants were eating pretty much the food of adults there was no such thing as mushed up food it was basically you know maybe the infant or whenever the infant was had come off the breast they'd be eating maybe meat straight off the bone um, gnawing on different things etc so it's just things have changed and that's the way it is. Like, And adults become mouth breathers too. They have a higher incidence of allergies, but we know then that the nose is stuffy due to over-breathing. So what's causing what? Is it the allergy that's causing the mouth the breathing or is it the mouth breathing that's feeding back into the allergy? It's both. With asthma, is it the asthma that's causing the airways to constrict? And as a result, the individual feels they're not getting enough air, so they breathe harder. Or is it the harder breathing that's causing the airways to constrict? It's both. There's feedback. And there's a feedback mechanism as well with anxiety then it can be a vicious circle because the individual feels too breathless because their breathing isn't good and then they don't want to do physical exercise because they don't they don't enjoy physical exercise in order to compel people to do physical exercise you have to enjoy it you have to get a buzz out of it but you know if your breathing is is labored and that's going to be influenced by how you breathe 24/7 by the way physical exercise doesn't necessarily correct your breathing so physical exercise isn't the route to good breathing good breathing is the route To physical exercise and if you've got good breathing during physical exercise you're less breathless you're better able you know to push yourself during physical exercise without losing control of your breathing and you'll enjoy it more and of course then you know you've got the better cycle better health benefits etc so many factors you know as an adult it's easier to pinpoint in children but certainly if you've got an adult who's talking a lot during the day talking increases both the respiratory frequency which is the number of breaths they take per minute and also the tidal volume, which is the size of each breath. Um, so talking significantly increases breathing. So that individual, if they're talking for six or eight hours, there's a period of time there that they're breathing too much air in respect of their metabolic needs, and then they go home tired because if you're breathing too much, it contributes to your blood vessels constricting. It contributes to less oxygen delivered to the cells. And I know that's the ironic thing, you know, because oftentimes we think that the more air we breathe into our lungs, the more oxygen delivered. In actual fact, it's the opposite that happens. So somebody who's talking, they're exhausted after a day's talking. And it's not necessarily because of the mental content, because, you know, I'm talking now and I don't have to think about what I'm saying. We're doing it for years. You know, it's muscle memory built up there. Just, you're an, auto, I'm an autopilot. School teacher is the same. Uh, somebody in sales is the same, but yet they're exhausted. They never seem to put the connection between their breathing during their talking and state of exhaustion. And then stress. Stress is probably the big one for adults. Um, stress increases our breathing. We breathe faster. We breathe more upper chest. We sigh more. We take in more air into our lungs. Um, we can hear our breathing. Th- those are all the traits of dysfunctional breathing patterns. And then you might have a belief that it's good to take a deep breath. Next thing is you see this big, big breath, fresh air full of, you know, drawn into the lungs and the individual, is, oh, it might feel good initially because you're stretching everything and you're relaxing it. But much- What it's doing is it's reinforcing that stress state. So the best way to understand about breathing is think of what, how, how would you activate the relaxation response? And meditation will help activate the relaxation response. You do meditation. Your breathing goes slow. Yeah. You lower your metabolism. You're breathing through your nose. Ideally, you breathe using your diaphragm and your breathing really goes quiet and soft. And we bypass meditation. We actually have our individuals go straight into reducing their breathing to deliberately slow down the breath, to deliberately quieten the breath, to slow down the speed of air that enters and leaves your nostrils, and to slow it down sufficiently that you reduce the amount of air that you're taking into your lungs by about 30%. And this creates a need for air. And the need for air is signifying that there's an increase of carbon dioxide in the blood. And the increase of carbon dioxide in the blood opens up the blood vessels and also activates the relaxation response. So within three to four minutes, individuals feel drowsy, they feel relaxed, And they also feel warmer. So if any of your listeners have cold hands or cold feet, it's not a great sign, you know, brain fog, not a great sign. Your blood vessels are constricting and more than likely due to breathing too much. It's basically when I'm looking at breathing, I'm looking at how are you breathing 24 hours a day? Not just during the time that you're, you're doing something, but your overall breathing, your everyday breathing is the key.
0: My listeners who know my story know that in 2015, I had to go see a neurologist because I thought my brain was literally turning to cabbage. I couldn't hold eye contact once I started talking out loud with people anymore, once I started trying to talk about things that was in-depth, or I had to talk for a long period of time. My concentration was off. My focus was off. And so I went and had all these MRI tests and all these things done. And the neurologist is basically like, man, you need sleep. And I'm thinking that can't be it. It had to be something else. Sure enough, I think it was sleep. They ran me through all these tests. My brain was fine. I even scored way above average on a lot of things, which was surprising to me. So I started working on my sleep. Mm-hmm. I started noticing that several times during the day, I would feel like someone was standing on my chest, and it would either be while I was talking. As I just mentioned, or I could even be just sitting doing some computer work and (gasps) I'd have to take a big gulp in. I'd never had that happen before. So I go to my other doctor, my primary care physician. I said, I need help. I can't breathe. He's like, well, it could be stress. It could be fatigue, whatever. So he puts the pulse oximeter on my finger and he said, oh, your oxygen looks great. So it can't be that. You're like at 94%. You're taking in a huge breath of air for someone your age. So there was no solution. And what I realized was through your book, when I started reading this, it took me back to that time because I started during that time reading a lot of breath exercises, breath hold exercises that were more geared toward what we were all taught to do. Breathe deeply to feel better. Breathe deeply to engage the parasympathetic nervous system Mm -hmm. to relax and give you that relaxed feeling. And it does. But your book pointed out two things to me. And I really want the audience to hear this because I bet Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people out there thinking if I just continually breathe in deeply. I'm saturating my body with more oxygen, but what your book pointed out is that you're pretty much, you know, a normal, healthy human being, you're pretty much always saturating your oxygen levels as much as you possibly can. Secondly, that deep breath will engage that parasympathetic nervous system. It will give Mm -hmm. you that relaxation Mm -hmm. response. But let's camp out on those two things for just a moment. Why do deeper breaths not actually bring more oxygen into the body like we think? Sure. Why are deeper breaths actually harmful for the body when really you should be breathing in a way where people really don't even see or hear you moving deep
1: breathing is good but what is deep breathing so as we spoke about earlier on a young infant if you were to put them on on a table and just observe their breath if they were lying on their backs you'll see as they breathe in their little tummies will rise and as they breathe out their little tummies will fall so a deep breath if you were to look at the word deep it means far from the top that's the definition anybody knows you know if you go to a swimming pool the deep end is where the water is furthest you know it's deepest from the surface so in the context of the lungs, a deep breath just means you're using your diaphragm. Now, the ironic thing is to really activate the diaphragm, you have to breathe through your nose. Any of your listeners can test this. If they look down at their chest, take a breath through the mouth, and they'll see that their chest rises and falls as, as they breathe through an open mouth. Mouth breathing causes chest breathing. Nose breathing has been proven to activate the diaphragm and the lower intercostal muscles. So anybody who wants to deep breathe start breathing through your nose because then you'll naturally start to do it. And we do exercise then to strengthen the diaphragm. So say if somebody has been mouth breathing for a period of time, they may have poor diaphragm muscle tone. So we have little exercise there just to build up strength of the diaphragm, which of course is good for sports, etc. So a deep breath is using the diaphragm, but it doesn't have to be big. And that's the real key. You know, how many people when they're instructed to take a deep breath, that they take the lightest quietest breath through the nose driven by the diaphragm. That's a deep breath. Um most people when they're told to take a deep breath, they take a big thoracic breath and that's the opposite to the deep breath.
0: Why do you feel like people who should be more engaged in this, people in the medical community, people who are yoga practitioners, people who are just, aren't just fly-by-night people, these are experts in their field. Mm-hmm. These are people, I mean, even Navy SEALs yes. who have been taught how yeah. to breathe at high levels and be at high levels of peak performance. Why have they not, over all these years, learned what your research has brought you to the conclusion of?
1: I, don't, you know, I think in Western society, we always believe that big is better, bigger car, bigger house, bigger job. So you never see it in nature. You never see a racehorse going around with the mouth open. Yeah, dogs is an exception. Dog mouth breeds to regulate body temperature. Um, But all of species of animals on earth, all nasal breeders, all innate nasal breeders, none of them intentionally take bigger breaths. And it's been estimated that 10% of patients visiting general practitioner care in the United States are chronic hyperventilators. That's 10%, 1 in 10. And these patients are going in and, you know... Chronic overbreathing can affect any organ or system to different degrees. So they may feel that they're more anxious. Um, they may have palpitations or tachycardia. The heart may be racing more. You know, they could have dizziness. They could have breathing problems, chest complaints. You know, they could have Raynaud's poor circulation in the hands, paresthesia, migraine, any number of different complaints. And these different complaints can affect any system or be from any system. So a doctor is looking at them. And here's somebody coming in. And they're presenting with these different complaints. And the doctor's saying, well, we'll do all the tests. And of course, the tests come back negative. There's nothing wrong with the person. They're over-breathing. But now, of course, the person is getting even more anxious because they're thinking to themselves, oh my God, I must have something drastically wrong because the doctor doesn't even know what's going on here. So I must have something that's incurable by modern science. It's because the doctor is failing to realize the effect of over-breathing. This effect has been documented since the late 1800s. Um, Dr. De Costa was an American physician in the American Civil War, and he noticed that soldiers returning from from war, because of the, the effects of stress, they had unexplained breathlessness. They had fatigue. Fatigue is a huge one. People prone to panic attacks. You know, all of these symptoms can be related to overbreathing. And he wrote about it. He called it De Costa syndrome. And then somebody else talked about it. And you know, it's got a long history. In 1937, I think it was Kerr and colleagues who came up with the term hyperventilation syndrome. And then somebody asked to develop the hyperventilation test. They get somebody to breathe 30 times a breath, sorry, 30 breaths per minute, breathe faster, in other words, to induce hyperventilation and to bring on the symptoms that you're experiencing. So if you breathe hard, does it cause your chest to get tight? Well, then you know that your breathing hard is causing your chest to get tight. And like this was going on and on. And Claude Lom he said that what happened here, the reason this gets no attention is doctors said it wasn't their field. And they they said it was a psychiatric condition. So they passed the domain of over-breathing to the psychiatrists. And the psychiatrist said it wasn't their field. So they passed it back to the doctors. So it fell between the two stools. And that's why it got no attention. When you breathe normally and quietly and calmly, your blood oxygen saturation is pretty much almost fully saturated. You cannot add any more oxygen to the blood by breathing more than normal. I'll just rephrased that, break it down a little bit. Hemoglobin is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood. And hemoglobin is a protein. It carries 70 times more oxygen than what would be just dissolved in the blood. Because oxygen is not very, it's not very soluble in blood. But a small amount of oxygen is dissolved in the blood. But the main amount of oxygen is carried in the blood by hemoglobin. If you breathe hard, you're not going to improve or increase your spO2, the amount of oxygen that's carried by hemoglobin. But you can increase slightly the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood. But the amount of oxygen dissolved in the blood is a very, very small amount. It's three milliliters of oxygen per one liter of blood. Now, the problem with breathing hard is it gets rid of the gas carbon dioxide. And when you lose CO2, the bond between hemoglobin and oxygen increases. So in other words, for oxygen to be released from the red blood cells, you need CO2. But if you're breathing hard in the belief to bring more oxygen into your blood, um, what's actually happening is that you're getting rid of carbon dioxide and the blood isn't releasing the oxygen to your cells. So your doctor measured your SpO2, uh, said it was normal, it was between 95 and 99%. He said, "Yeah, great, you've plenty of oxygen in your blood." That wasn't the problem. The problem was that the oxygen wasn't getting from the blood to the cells. There's no point in just breathing in, breathing in, and for oxygen to transfer into the lungs and from the lungs into the blood, and it does a round trip. You know, there's no point in, in oxygen doing a round trip around the body, and next thing is you exhale it back out again. That's a waste. So how do we get oxygen to be released from the red blood cells to the cells? We need carbon dioxide. But how do we increase our CO2 or how do we have normal CO2? We need to have normal breathing.
0: Patrick, you mentioned a couple of things there that I want to make sure that our segments cover here for people who may not have heard about this or who have breathing problems. And when it comes to biohacking, which, as you know, is just a stimulus and a response. How do we get our body to respond to something that we're testing? And how do we try new things that can get our bodies to respond? And sometimes people try new things, and they've got to move on and try other things. But you can have wrong form. You can have wrong mindset. You can have wrong whatever that goes into some of the science. So the science is what's happening when you're testing those different parameters. Does it work? Does it not work? Does it work the way you want to? And then there's an art. And when you look at breathing, there's an art and a science behind it. Shaping your mouth shut is the art behind it, but the science is what's actually happening while you are sleeping. Your book shows that as air enters the nose, it swirls around these spongy bones called turbinates, and it saturates the vessels and the tissues and the mucus brackets, and nose breathing actually sterilizes the air that's brought in through the lungs. And when we look at air that's brought in through the nose versus the mouth, let's expand on that a bit. what is actually happening in air being brought in through the nose versus air being brought in through the mouth.
1: Knows that mouth breathing doesn't affect everybody the same. So it'll all depend on genetic predisposition. But we do know if you breathe through an open mounted sleep, you're twice as likely to have sleep problems. And um, we also know from studies that if you breathe through your mouth during your sleep, that you tend to go into light sleep. You don't go down as much into your deep, deep sleep. And it's deep, deep sleep is where the brain is, you know, it goes through its repair from the day, etc. An individual who mouth breathes is more likely to wake up tired and they're more likely to be tired during the day. And also, I think the best thing to really test, you know, whether something is good or bad is practice it for five minutes. Put your hand in your chest and tummy, bring your attention onto your breath, onto the breath as it comes into the nose, onto the breath as it leaves your nose and gently slow down the speed of air as it both comes into your nose and as it it leaves your nose. And you want to slow down your breathing to the point that you're taking about 30% less air into your body. So can you slow down your breath to the point that you feel air hunger? You have to slow down your breathing sufficiently that you feel that you're not getting enough air, that you you would like to take in a deeper breath. Don't hold your breath during it. Don't freeze your breathing. Just gently soften and slow down the breath. And do that for about three to five minutes. During that time, check the amount of saliva in your mouth. Is it less, more, or the same? Check your body temperature and check your mental state. And within five minutes, you'll realize the effect of breathing. Now, if you can activate the parasympathetic nervous system, um, improve your body temperature, And it'll also help, of course, open your airways, etc. If you can do that in five minutes by slowing down your breathing, what's happening if you're going around fast breathing all the time? It's going to have the opposite effect. So a couple of things about the nose. There's paranasal sinuses surrounding the nasal cavity and they release a gas called nitric oxide. If you breathe through your nose, nitric oxide release into the nose and it's continuously being released into the nose. is 50 to 200 parts per billion. Nitric oxide has antibacterial properties, there's also a mucus blanket within the nose, within the nasal cavity, which is also antibacterial. So nitric oxide sterilizes the air before it's drawn into the lungs. Nitric oxide also is a bronchodilator, opens up the airways. It passes into the blood, and in the blood, it helps to reverse the build-up of plaque and cholesterol. And it's also a vasodilator. Nitric oxide opens up the blood vessels. So, for example, the benefits of nitric oxide in 1992, it was said that it was a mighty molecule one of the most important molecules in the human body. It unites all the major disciplines of medicine and three researchers, uh, including one is Dr. Louis Ignaro from UCLA Medical School. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for for Medicine and Physiology when he he discovered the effect of nitric oxide as a signaling molecule in the cardiovascular system. This gas nitric oxide is largely coming from your nasal cavity. Nowadays, of course, it's produced in other sites of the body, including the blood vessels. But the nose is a good resource for it. So it's very important to harness the gas by breathing through the nose. Another thing is, when you carry nitric oxide down into your lungs, and nitric oxide will redistribute the blood from the lower lobes of the lungs to the upper. Because we, we are generally upright. We're sitting, we're standing. And as a result, blood, due to gravity, more blood is in the lower parts of the lungs than the upper. But if we're going around with our mouth open, we're breathing using the upper part more than the lower. So there's a poor ventilation perfusion there. When you breathe through your nose, you carry the air deeper into the lungs. So you're carrying the air down into the lungs. And also as you breathe through your nose, you pick up nitric oxide. And nitric oxide redistributes the blood from the lower lobes to the upper. Nose breathing also slows down your breath. And this is very important for calmness and tranquility. So if you breathe through your nose, you'll tend to breathe slower because during the day, there's a 50% resistance imposed by breathing through your nose, basically because the nostrils are smaller and the nostrils are designed as such that the air enters a small area that speeds up the air. And then as the air goes into the nasal cavity, it automatically slows down. And the whole purpose of that is when you speed up the air and you slow it down, well, the particles that are in the air are going to get deposited within the nasal cavity so they can be removed from the body. So nose breathing slows down the breath. And Because of improved ventilation perfusion, which I spoke about earlier on, it improves arterial gas uptake. So basically arterial oxygen in the blood is 10 to 20% higher by breathing through your nose versus breathing through your mouth. Now nose breathing also increases end tidal CO2. So CO2 levels in the blood is higher and more towards normal. And carbon dioxide is necessary for oxygen release from the red blood cells. So not only does nose breathing improve oxygen uptake, it also improves oxygen delivery. But I'll give you a story. My daughter had her adenoids removed. And um, during the operation, she, she, you know, her nose was still blocked. And as a result, she was mouth breathing. And when, when the nurse came into the hospital, I said to the nurse, I says I'm a little concerned. I said, her SpO2 is 93%. And the nurse said to me, oh, that's because she has her mouth open. So the nurse intuitively knew that child who is was having the mouth open, that the SpO2 drops. Now, I have to admit, I don't always see it when I measure pulse oximetry and I measure quite a lot of people, that we tend to see more normal. But in the studies, it does show a deleterious effect that there's a negative effect or a reduced effect that mouth breathing doesn't in, enhance uh, blood gas exchange as much as nose breathing. And we know that from Professor John Lundberg's papers looking at nasal nitric oxide in man, ventilation, perfusion, that the nose is far superior to, to oxygen uptake. And we also know that tidal carbon dioxide with it, with that, but a higher end title CO2 oxygen delivery from the blood to the cells is going to be superior to first to mouth breathing. Um, but it has been written about, it has been documented and I've seen changes to people, thousands, just by asking them to switch to nose breathing, just by changing their breathing volume. I've seen their sleep, their state of anxiety. I've seen depression change. Um, you know, and, if, if somebody wants to, to delve further into this, there's a very good book. It's called Behavioral and Psychological Approaches to Breathing. It was written by two doctors back in the 1990s, doctors Timmons and Lee L.E.Y. And they talk about chronic overbreathing, chronic hyperventilation. It can reduce oxygen delivery to the brain by up, by half, by 50%. And now you're thinking about, well, if there's less oxygen getting to the brain, the brain's going to be more excited. Could that contribute then to, for example, people with panic attack, anxiety, um, poor concentration and all that? Children with ADHD. I've just read a recent paper that, you know, we were always, we always knew there was a connection between mouth breathing and ADHD. But the way we looked at the connection was that children were sleeping with an open mouth. As a result, their sleep is affected. So they were waking up tired. And as they were waking up tired, their concentration was affected and they were hyperactive. But a recent paper that I've read is that Mouth breathing, it causes an extra oxygen demand by the brain. So the brain demands more oxygen, but in actual fact, the brain gets less. And they said this could be one of the reasons for ADHD in children. So there's more and more information coming out about this. A lot of information coming out about mouth breathing is coming from Br- Brazil. have really led the world in terms of from an orthodontic per- perspective. And from that, then, you know, they're looking at mouth breathing during childhood affects academic achievement, malocclusions. Crooked teeth, development of the jaws. So yeah, there's, there's no comparison. The mouth is for eating, for drinking and for speaking. The nose is for breathing. That's it.
0: I think one of the major things or one of the main things that helps you in nose breathing is that the nose is a reservoir for NO, for nitric oxide, as we were just talking about. It's that essential gas. But until the 1980s, nitric oxide was considered a poisonous gas. And it's amazing to people. It was amazing to people that something so harmful on the outside could be so helpful on the inside. And I think that's why you're mentioning sleeping with your tape on your mouth at night is so helpful so that you force yourself to do that nose breathing all through the night. I know for me... I had my nose broken twice whenever I was younger mm-hmm. playing basketball, and I think that's what caused an extremely deviated septum. My nose is so messed up to the point that if I take a breath, not even a super deep breath, but if I just take a, a breath with pressure on it on my nose, one of my nostrils completely closes. It folds closed because of the obstruction of not as much air going through the other one. Mm-hmm. So when I take my mouth shut at night, I put nose spacers up in my nose that I bought online where I can space that out a little bit. It's a little bit better than the right guard strips that I've used before. Mm-hmm. So I put those nose spacers in my nose, I tape my mouth shut, but I'll wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, and if I'm laying the wrong way, I'll be doing super deep, heavy nose breathing because I feel like I have so much obstruction there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm just wondering how all of that plays in for someone who does have the obstruction of the nose, yet they're still trying to teach themselves how to constantly breathe through the nose. Is there something more we could be doing, especially at night or even during the day? Sure.
1: Um, most people, if they've got nasal obstruction, they don't constantly try to breathe through the nose. And when studies are looking at the effect of nasal decongestions or surgery on sleep, they often say that, well, if you have surgery on your nose, it's not really going to help your sleep. But they never ask the question, are these individuals breathing through the nose? I had surgery on my nose in 1994. Nobody told me to breathe through it. And because I had years, previous years of mouth breathing, I just continued breathing through an open mouth. You know, So we really have to actively teach people. And medical professions, I think it's the onus is on them that if they are, you know, doing a tonsillectomy or adenoidectomy on children, that they tell these kids, breathe through your nose. It's vitally important. If they don't, sleep disorder breathing will return back in about three years. Coming back to this point, how do you know if, how obstructed your nose is? In other words, is your nose, is it reversible obstruction? Is it inflammation? Or is there a structural deviated septum there? Is it structural? Very simple way to do it if you're not pregnant, if you don't have high blood pressure, if you're relatively good health, take a small breath into your nose, small breath out to your nose, pinch your nose, hold your breath and walk about 20 to 30 paces holding your nose. And after about 20 to 30 paces holding your nose, then let go, breathe into your nose and calm your breathing. Wait a minute, breathe normally, rest and then do it again, rest, do it again. Do it six times. If your nose is still totally blocked, you have a structural problem. And if your nose feels open, you have reversible obstruction. So it'll tell you straight away.
0: When you're referring to blockage, it's
1: more just mucus or congestion, right? Yeah, it's congest. Basically, so you do the nose and blocking exercise. If your nose feels free after the exercise, well, then you know that the nose is opened up. So therefore, the the, the obstruction has been mucus or the, the obstruction has been blood vessels swollen in the nose. But if if after doing the nose blocking exercise that your nose still really feels that it's difficult to breathe through it, you know, then it's structural. So a lot of people, you know, they will have some, you know, deviated septums are very common, but it doesn't mean that you have to go around with your mouth open. I have a deviated septum. One rule of thumb that I use is that I'll have people do that nose unblocking exercise, do it about six times. And if the individual can breathe through their nose for one minute, they can do it for life. Now, Another aspect is you can reduce muscle patency in the nose because of continuous mouth breathing. So you talked about theirs. If you take a big sniff, if you block one nostril and you take a big sniff, that the other nostril collapses as you suck air into your lungs. So that would suggest that airway patency is reduced a bit, possibly because of mouth breathing. The nasal dilators that you talked about work um, because they're based on what's called Cottle's maneuver, and they can help restore nasal breathing. So. We use a a product for sleep, we call it, it's mute. It's it's not our own product, it's somebody else's, but it's really good. It's mute snoring. And for athletes, because you can have athletes as well, it's very small nostrils, very narrow nasal cavity, and they can't breathe through the nose, so they have to breathe through the mouth. So for athletes, we also use, it's called the, the turbine. And basically, it's a little plastic device that you put up into the nose and it opens up the nasal airway. So it makes breathing easier. Now, there's one benefit for that during sleep. If you have a nasal obstruction due to, say, de- septum deviation or whatever, it can increase the negative pressure further on down the airway. So if you have, if your nose is blocked, it can cause further increased negative pressure downstream and that can increase the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. So breathing through the nose, but also having sufficient airflow that you don't have so much resistance is important for sleep. Because if you're constantly having heavier breathing, light breathing, heavier breathing, light breathing, if your, if your breathing is waxing and waning, you're, you're being disrupting, is your sleep is getting disrupted. So you're not going to have the deep sleep that you need. You're more likely to wake up tired.
0: So Patrick, for those who are wanting to increase their awareness around oxygen, They can read your book, The Oxygen Advantage, but you just alluded to a couple of really quick things that they can do. Mm -hmm. But you've also got a technique that I thought was fascinating called bringing the mountain to you, where you hold your nose and you walk several spaces. Let's end on that in this first segment. And then in segment number two, we'll pick up on some of the chemical processes that are going on in the body. But let's leave them with this as far as the Bolt score. Walk us through what the Bolt score is, how you increase that over time. What are some flags or markers of awareness that we need to know about related to the Bolt score? and how that leads to overall health. And then we'll end on actually bringing the mountain to us.
1: The bowl score is is simply, it's a measurement of the length of time that you can hold your breath for comfortably following an exhalation. So you take a smaller, normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, you pinch your nose with your fingers, and you time it, how long does it take before you feel the first distinct desire, the first definite urge to breathe? Um, When you resume breathing, your breathing needs to be pretty calm. So it's not the length of time that you can hold your breath for a maximum. It's only a comfortable breath hold time. Now, you can think of it this way. You're holding your breath until the brain tells you to breathe. So the first instruction of your brain to breathe. And you may feel it as involuntary contractions of the breathing muscles. Now, what the bolt score measures is that it measures the onset and endurance of breathlessness. So if somebody breathes hard, they'll tend to have a low breath hold time. And if they have a low breath hold time, they'll tend to breathe hard. They'll breathe hard both during the day, during their sleep, and also during physical exercise. So we want to increase the BOLD score. When you improve your BOLD score, your breathing is becoming lighter. When your breathing is becoming lighter, more oxygen is delivered to the cells. But your breathing is also slower. Because we have to consider that slow breathing and light breathing is so good for the mind. Stanford Medical School in March of this year, they published new research we we all know about the pacemaker in the heart, but they said there's a pacemaker in the brain and the pacemaker is regulating. Your breathing is regulating your mental state. So if you breathe fast, you get agitated. And if you really slow down your breathing, you get relaxed. So if you naturally breathe slower, you'll be in a more relaxed state. So if somebody is naturally breathing faster all the time, they'll be more hyperactive. So that's the board. How do we increase it? Nose breathing day and night. Nose breathing during light physical exercise. If you're just a recreational athlete, keep the mouth closed all the time. You get a far better workout, better recovery, uh, less asthma, less bronchoconstriction, etc. Breathing through the nose. Now, if you're a competitive athlete, we do encourage, say, 50-50. 50% 50 nose breathing, which will add an extra load onto the breathing muscles. And 50% mouth breathing, so that you can maintain muscle conditioning of the legs. So there's a slight difference there. But for most people, you know, nose breathe all the time. Practice then slowing down your breath different times during the day. It would be great, you know, to be doing 60 minutes throughout the day. If you were watching TV, really slow down your breath and use it as your time to improve body oxygenation. A few minutes before you go to bed at night, if you've got insomnia, you know, you find it difficult to sleep, practice slowing down your breath for 15 minutes because it will activate that relaxation response, the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's easier to get down and sleep and your sleep will be deeper. If you have a deeper sleep, of course, then you wake up more alert, but you wake up calmer. It's very normal, you know, if, if, if the sleep is off, the mind is agitated. And we have breath-hole exercises involving walking. And the whole premise of the breath-hole exercises is we always hold the breath after an exhalation. The breath-hole exercises are only suitable uh, for people in relatively good health and if the female isn't pregnant. It, it does a number of things. We take a small breath in, say as we're walking, and we take a small breath in through the nose, a small breath out, we pinch your nose. And you're holding the breath until you, say, feel a medium air hunger. And then you let go, you breathe into your nose. As you're holding your breath, nitric oxide builds up in the nasal cavity. And when you resume breathing, you're carrying a major quantity, an accumulation of nitric oxide into your lungs. But as you hold your breath, carbon dioxide also builds up in the blood. And carbon dioxide is also going to help open up the nose and going to help up open up the, the bronchi, the airways. And as you hold your breath, uh, with practice, you'll be able to drop your oxygen saturation. So we can simulate high altitude training. And another aspect of it is that as you hold your breath, you know, your your psychological aspect is that we're creating a feeling of breathlessness far beyond what you would tolerate normally during physical exercise. So you're teaching the body that you can go harder and faster. You're also adding an extra load onto the breathing muscles um, because as you hold your breath and you continue to hold your breath, the brain will continue sending messages via the phrenic nerve to the diaphragm for the diaphragm to contract in order to take more air into the lungs. Um, But of course, you continue to hold your breath. So the messages that are sent continue to increase in frequency. So the diaphragm gets a workout. So in a nutshell, we expose the body to a very high amount of hydrogen, hydrogen ion, which is acidosis. And that increases the buffering capacity. So say for people involved in anaerobic sports, we can delay the onset of lactic acid and fatigue because we're deliberately putting the body into fatigue to get the body to make adaptations we activate the sympathetic nervous system during breath hold. This could actually be good for the immune system. There's new studies, papers that are coming out in terms of the effect of, it was the Wim Hof method, even though he hyperventilates and then he does a breath holding. But it's the breath hold that will, it activates the sympathetic nervous system and this will release adrenaline into the system. And this in turn then causes the body to make adaptations so the body then is able to fight better. Autoimmune conditions and the, the theorists in Cox's paper talks about fighting but well not fighting, but helping with people with rheumatoid arthritis. So there's a number of things, many things that go on. Um, in terms of breathing exercise, we've got kind of different breathing exercise for different people and starts off with nose breathing. So what I'd say to your listeners is start observing your breath, pay some attention to it. Are you breathing through your nose, breathing through your mouth? Do you sigh? If you sigh quite often, it's a red flag. Um, it's a red flag of breathing pattern disorders and do you snore for example do you have obstructive sleep apnea pay t- pay attention to your breathing how fast do you breathe measure your bowl score you'll get you'll get the exercise from the book you'll get it on youtube and get some feedback on how you breathe because i can honestly say it'll be the best time you've spent you know in terms of something that it won't cost you pretty much it's free you know okay if you were to buy the book it's about 20 dollars but other than that you know it, it's a it's a it's absolutely free in the exercise. You can practice them. You don't need equipment. You need nothing. Okay. For, for breath hold exercises, we do say to athletes, you know, it could be beneficial. Y- you might like to see your, your oxygen, your blood oxygenation, you know, drop. So you could, buy, could buy a handheld pulse oximeter from Amazon. You can buy them cheap. You can buy them for $10 or you could get a decent enough one for maybe $100. And that would be about it. But you can literally simulate altitude at a height of about fourteen thousand feet by simply changing your breathing and there's a lot more to it. So
0: it's amazing. And you just spoke to clarify there, because we unpacked a lot, you spoke about two different training elements there. And there's so much more in the book. I'd encourage you guys to get it. Yeah. But the bolt scores where you're not walking, no. You're not simulating that high altitude I think it's important for people to really know what you said there as far as taking a regular breath in, not a deep breath, but a regular breath in, and you push a regular breath out through your nose. Yes, It's always on the exhale, and we'll talk about that in part two as well, but you exhale out with a normal breath. You plug your nose with your fingers. For someone like me who doesn't breathe well and who – in fact, just this morning on the drive in, I was taking my out breath, and I noticed that when I get to about nine or ten seconds, even before I get that first diaphragm spasm – I'll actually get a deep burning right down my sternum, almost like my body's panicking or freaking out or whatever. But shortly right after that, I'll get a spasm of the diaphragm. And even with my mouth tape shut at night, even the things I've been trying to do, my Bolt score, as far as I can tell, really is not that far past 10. So I'm wondering if I have other things that are obstructing that or making that restriction happen. But what would you say to someone with a really low Bolt score that's saying, gosh, what's going on here? I wonder what's happening. Are there other things I could be doing? More training, more practice? What could we tell our listeners there?
1: Yeah, it's uh, first to establish that you're, you're doing the exercise correctly from the book. You know, you have to get that air shortage. You have to be conscious of your breathing. And also then the quantity of the exercise. So you'd want to be doing them for about 10 minutes. If somebody is very stubborn in terms of, you know, if the Bolt score is very stubborn, I'd have the individual practice about 10 minutes for about seven or eight hours, 10 minutes every hour for about seven or eight hours and to practice it for about two days. And that should be enough that you start seeing the bolt score increasing. And it'll depend on lifestyle. You know, if you're talking all day, that goes against the bolt score. But if you do good physical exercise with the mat closed, that will improve the bolt score. Relaxation helps to improve it. You know, there is a genetic component to it. Some people, it takes a bit more work, but it's trainable. Like I, I give classes in Ireland... Um we give them outside of it too. But even, you know, last Tuesday I had a group of people here in Galway and we measured our, their bolts. And we had them again last night and they've all increased and that's about nine days. And the the increase that I would expect is about five seconds in the nine days. But now when you're going to a class or so you're kind of determined and you're putting it into practice. So I suppose just a little bit more work and see how it goes, and then you'll know.
0: Yeah, so maybe the frequency. I think it's important to note, too, that whenever you feel that, you mentioned it's not holding your breath the max capacity.
1: Yeah, so maximum capacity will be influenced by willpower and determination. So literally, and you're, you're correct in saying that you do sit down, you have to sit down for about five to ten minutes. You can't just walk around and take it. Uh, sit down for about five to ten minutes and then take a normal breath in, normal breath out, hold your nose, and count how many seconds does it take for the first reaction of the body to breathe, that's your boat.
0: And then your breath should resume back to normal breathing within two or three breaths, within two or three cycles. If not, you've held it too long, right?
1: Yeah, it, it shouldn't even come back in two or three seconds. It, it should be fairly normal. Once you resume breathing, it should be normal enough.
0: Gotcha. As we get ready to wrap up the podcast here, thanks so much for your time. And I look forward to diving into more of even the scientific part here in part number two. Mm-hmm. But I know we talked about bringing the mountain to you in your book. And I was on a walk with my children one time with a grocery store, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go slow. I'm going to do this exercise of bring the mountain to me. And I had about 40, 45 minutes from the time we left the house to the time we went to the store. And I was working on this the entire time. I was holding my nose, counting how many paces I could go. And I noticed on the way back, I don't even know how to describe it, but it was almost like a wave of, I guess it's a stress response, but Mm -hmm. I started noticing myself getting very agitated, very edgy, almost like a depression coming over me. I was just feeling a little bit off, very uncomfortable feeling all over my body psychologically. I'm assuming that was just from the stress I was putting my body through, like it had not been before with the constant breath holds and the walking. Do you have any idea of what might be going on there?
1: Yeah, it, it could be, and it could also depend on your, your predisposition. So if we have say somebody coming in, they might have a history of small, like you were talking about chest tightness as part of your symptoms and that burning, You're re- you're literally replicating the symptoms. And alarm bells go off. Now, in some ways, it's good to replicate the symptoms because you're teaching the body that, yeah, air shortage is fine, but do it easy, you know, do it gently. So I'd always, like, if somebody comes in, like, I've seen 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and these would be footballers, these would be tough guys. um, I've seen them crying from doing breath-holding. And, you know, they're tough lads and they're physically fit, but they, they have underlying panic or underlying anxiety there. So we, we just... We always kind of consider, like, what's their background? And when somebody comes in like that, we, we start off very gently. So we build them up. So we give them a teaspoon of the exercises and gently build them up. And, you know, you'd be surprised where they get there and they can do it quick. They can do it quick. And also the benefits that they get are tremendous because they're constantly teetering on the brink of symptoms. And if you have got a low boat, as you're talking about 10 seconds, you know, you, you, it doesn't take much to push push somebody. But a boat of 10 seconds, depending on their genetics, you know, if they're predisposed to panic attack, it doesn't take much to push them over the edge.
0: You mentioned in the book to try not to yawn or sigh. Yeah, You mentioned yeah. sighing. If we think about sighing, try not to. If we think about yawning, try not to. If we need to take a deep belly-filled air-filled breath through the nose, as far as nose breathing, is that okay or do we want to avoid that as well?
1: No, it's, you know, if you, want to, if you want to breathe more, go for a run, you know, because then your, your breathing volume will increase relative to your metabolic activity. Other than that, breathe using your diaphragm, but breathe light.
0: Breathe light to breathe right. I know it says that over and over again in the book. That's it, yeah. Patrick, thank you so much. So much of this is gonna help so many people out there, and I know people can go on your website, theoxygenadvantage.com. Is there anywhere else people can find you or your material out there?
1: Yeah, so you could go to the website, Oxygen Advantage, or just we've YouTube channels, so you'll see some of the videos. The book is on Amazon. and uh, We have different languages. The book is going into nine or 10 different languages if any of your listeners want different languages. So it's all there. We've got training. We give training and, you know, the information is there. And if you have any questions, just drop me an email. I know I'm doing my best to answer people. So just keep the email brief. <laughs>
0: this is more information that people need to hear about. So I'm so honored and so privileged to be able to get this out on the podcast. And I look forward to diving into part two as we get further into improving breath and breath function. And I look forward to having you back on. So thanks so much for your time here today. Thanks very much, Jared. Thanks. Bye-bye. Wow, guys, I love having Patrick on the podcast here. And if you thought you got a lot of value in part one, just hang around for episode number 182, which will be part two of my dynamic episode with Patrick. If you guys would like to connect directly with me, please shoot an email to my team at info success101podcast.com. Or you can catch me in the world of social media on the Facebook Success 101 Podcast community page or on Instagram under the name at Success 101 Podcast. I'll catch you guys in part two of the oxygen advantage episode with Patrick McEwen coming up next. So make sure you come back for even more incredible breath work and oxygen information around higher levels of peak performance so that you can take it to the next level. See you there. ご視聴ありがとうございました。